So welcome to the session. So this session is uh, to do with closeouts. So sailing smoothly through a stressed environment. So obviously a derivatives bent. Uh, my name is Matthew Hebburn. I'm a partner um, in the derivatives group at Simmons and Simmons um, in London. But we will not just be taking a, a UK uh, stance on this today. And we're fortunate to be joined by um, colleagues from throughout our European network. Um, so the idea of the session really is just to have a little bit of a chat um, and to try and bring out some of the points which may put you uh, as a swap counterparty in the best position possible um, in a stressed environment. Now, obviously, I, I guess we've already had a slightly stressed environment, and certainly there have been closeouts uh, already, particular sectors, obviously, aviation has suffered uh, somewhat already. And indeed, we have had some disputes come uh, come out of the uh, sort of depression post-COVID um, uh, stress already. But I think it's fair to say that it's widely predicted that that stress will become greater. And therefore, we may be seeing something which is more akin to a GFC style uh, number of closeouts. And just sort of touching on that, I guess we have the benefit of hindsight with the GFC. So we've been through this before. But equally, that was quite a long time ago now. It makes me feel quite old to think that it's well over a decade ago that this all uh, that, that all hit. So from your perspective, I guess it's important to remember that some of the people who you, uh, you know, went through that and therefore would have the experience uh, from, from the uh, GFC closeouts uh, may well not be at your institution anymore. And equally, some of the processes which were updated to take account of the lessons learned during that uh, may now be out of date because documentation has moved on and, uh, uh, of course, your portfolio of transactions has moved on also. Um, I'm just going to say a few words first on the, some, of, some of the things which you can do in advance to prepare yourself from a documentation perspective to, to put you in the best position possible um, should you need to act quickly in a closeout scenario. And of course, it very often is um, a quick decision, um, a measured one, but one which often has, has to be uh, taken with, uh, with some speed. Uh, so you want to be in the best position as prepared as you can. Um, first point I'd like to make is just in the context of secured transactions, so the wider financings where a swap is built into those. Um, now, in those transactions, obviously, the, the swap can actually play quite a significant part in terms of the value, in terms of the mark-to-market value. And because it's a secure transaction with a waterfall, it means that it's not just necessarily the swap counterparty, which is going to be um, detrimentally impacted uh, by not acting quickly. And in fact, it may be many of the finance parties which are affected by that in a volatile market. But from your own perspective, um, it's important to remember that in these types of transactions, you most probably haven't entered into a straightforward ISDA uh, trading ISDA master agreement. You've entered into an ISDA which has been amended and you probably entered into possibly entered into other documents, for example, um, into creditors, uh, which uh, amend your rights uh, and obligations in respect to that transaction. So it's not going to be the same process um, that you may be used to uh, with regards to um, uh, a straightforward close out. So it's important to look at those documents and um, you, you know, hopefully there'll be some similarity between many of the transactions. So it's not a matter of going through each of the 3000 transactions you have on, but the, you know, just getting an idea of the types of restrictions which you've agreed to as part of your policy. So whether or not you've given up the right to um, close out in certain situations, whether or not you uh, uh, have agreed that you require the consent of another party, uh, whether you may be able to close out, but you may not be able 
to actually um, get your money, as it were, until obviously later in the day. So you may not be able to enforce until later in the day. So knowing all of these things and knowing what actions you have to take and when uh, puts you in the best position to be able to act in as expedient a manner as possible and also not to do the wrong thing and inadvertently breach one of the covenants which you've made um, in the documents. Moving on to some of the more straightforward, the ISDA trading style um, uh, agreements. Again, you probably heard it said before, but it really is key just to make sure that your processes um, are uh, up to scratch and in line with the terms of the agreement. Um, margin calls, for example, are the bread and butter of a failure to pay. In a stressed environment, it's most probably a missed margin call, which is going to be the, the trigger for closing out. And it's not uncommon, uh, with margin calls being automated in the way they are, for there to be a slight glitch in the system where the system doesn't quite match up with the particular uh, requirements of the ISDA master agreement, be it in terms of the, the timing that that notice went out, when you look at the uh, city it went out to, and whether or not it was a local business business day, um, those sorts of things, which you really need to get on top of, because if there was a slight glitch in that system, then when it comes to close out, that's going to be um, uh, used against you by your counterparty. It may mean that you have an invalid basis for closing out, which may mean that you then have to serve notices again, which may mean that you've got another couple of days of volatility on your mark to market position uh, before you can effectively close out. So really sort of go through those processes with a fine tooth comb against the, um, uh, the documents, and you can do that in advance, obviously. Equally, uh, with regards to counterparties, and you may choose to do this, obviously, based upon your own um, kind of judgment of, of how stressed the counterparty is likely to be, but you need to know um, their notice details. You need to have all of the documents in one place. Uh, and again, that's a common pitfall, sort of scrabbling around for documents, not realizing that there's an amendment to an ISDA master agreement, or not realizing that, that uh, someone has sent in a notice um, changing their, their details for where you have to serve notice. So making sure that you've got all of the uh, documents, particularly for, for counterparties you expect to be stressed in one place. So again, you're able to act as quickly um, as you possibly can in order to, uh, to maximize your chances to, of recovery. Now, if you move on from that, um, so into a more contentious, the more contentious world, uh, then you may need to turn your mind to thinking about, well, how do I maximize my chances of recovery in terms of um, sort of litigation? So are there issues, for example, with regards to your counterparty may not be in the same jurisdiction as you or their assets may not be? Um, are there things which you can do to set yourself up properly for that. So fortunate to have with us today, uh, Richard Bunce, who's a partner in our dispute resolution uh, practice, who's looked at many of these issues over the years. Um, so I'm now gonna hand over to Richard, just to give us a few nuggets of his wisdom on how to put yourself in the best position. Richard. Thanks, Matt. Well, I'll start with an overview. I mean, looked at from the contentious perspective over the last few months, I'd say that we've seen both swap providers and their counterparties starting to regain their confidence a bit in asserting their respective positions more robustly than has been at the, certainly at the start of the pandemic. In other words, I think we seem to be edging back more towards a business as normal situation. I'm going to make three points. First is, generically, the challenges that a counterparty can make to a closeout. First is, as Matt said, procedural, have the requisite notices, notices procedures been followed or not? But then there's also substantive points. Has the right to close out arisen or not? And if it has arisen, is it an unqualified right or is it a fettered right? 
and has the correct valuation methodology been followed? Matt's talked about the compliance with contractual formalities. This is a really key issue because if somebody serves an invalid notice, at best that notice is ineffective, but at worst it's an unlawful termination, say you've caused cross-default or something, that can render the serving party liable in damages to the party who's been wrongfully closed out. So don't take the shortcuts and have the documents ready in advance. The second area on that is around duties impacting on the exercise of contractual rights express and implied terms in English law. And here the first question is, what does the contract say? The second question is, if the contract's silent, what, if anything, will the law imply? And the third question is, is there anything relevant under statute or regulation? Legally, this is a very messy area in England. Uh, so far as express terms are concerned, you know, what have the parties agreed about behaviours, such as acting reasonably, following commercially reasonable methods, acting in good faith, and so on? There are some examples of that in the ISDA 2002 master, say the set-off currency conversion clause. But what if the contract's silent? Well, good faith is the first thing. It's often said that there's no general duty of good faith under English law. Uh, and in that sense, we're a bit of an outlier with the rest of the civilised world. Uh, but there are many exceptions, one of which is in the area of contractual discretions. Now, there is uncertainty as to what actually constitutes a contractual discretion. Uh, the authorities suggest that it involves an assessment of choosing from a range of options, taking into account the interests of both parties, and does not include circumstances where a party is deciding whether to exercise a remedial right, such as termination or rescission. But, under the general law, for a long time, where a party does have a contractual discretion, then the English courts will imply a term into the contract requiring the relevant party to exercise its discretion in a way that is not irrational, capricious or arbitrary in a public law sense. That is to say, and it's very elegant this, it's not so unreasonable that no reasonable person acting reasonably could have reached it. So, for example, where you have a calculation agent that may make a determination. So that, that's, a, that's a challenge to outcomes. How far does that go? No one really knows. But if the, term, if the court can apply a term that the outcome is objectively reasonable, that's fine. But the court may also imply a term that the decision-making process itself is lawful and rational. That's the so-called braganza duty. So it goes back exactly to what Matt was saying about making sure processes are robust. It's not just from a systems point of view, it's from a challenges point of view as well. My final two points, much shorter. First is jurisdictional arbitrage. Now, depending on where your counterparty is and what your jurisdiction clause is, if you're the party bringing the claim, there may be a first mover advantage for you to start in whatever jurisdiction that is. Uh, there's always going to be a risk of parallel proceedings, and that can really be an expensive sideshow distraction. Uh, at one level, I mean, it's going to compound the risk that you may not be able to enforce your judgment obtained in country A in country B. I'm going to leave the Eurozone out of this for the moment, because I think that's the subject of another talk today. But lastly, as regards enforcement judgments generally, it's worth considering the practicalities of those at an early stage. But in one sense, if you're having to consider enforcing a judgment, you're already in trouble because it suggests either you've got an irresponsible counterparty who isn't going to pay or that you've got an insolvent counterparty who can't pay. And here, local law, local insolvency laws may or may not help you, which leads me neatly back, I think, to Matt. Thank you very much, Richard. Yes, uh, and some, some very salient points there. I know not a long time to cover them, uh, so I'm sure people 
please do feel free to reach out to, to Richard if you'd like to discuss further. But as Richard said, another key to ensuring um, you have the best protection possible is to ensure that you know about and make maximum use of, or not breach at least, um, local insolvency laws because they may assist or impede um, your ability to um, to recover. So, for example, what can you set off and when? You know, when can you move the debt to, to be in the right position, as it were, the right holder for set off? And of course, just the basics of ensuring that netting works in the uh, relevant jurisdiction, which is obviously the, the insolvency jurisdiction of your counterparty. So here is where I'm going to turn to um, uh, uh, one of my colleagues in uh, Europe, and, and in particular, so Christopher Krantz from our Frankfurt office. Uh, so Christopher, have there been any uh, changes to German restructuring or insolvency law lately, which you think might be relevant in this context? Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Matt. And indeed, there have been quite a few changes lately to restructuring insolvency law in Germany. As of the 1st of January 2021, we had a completely uh, whole set of new laws, um, not so much with regards to insolvency laws so the insolvency proceedings. If you look at, in particular, the topic at hand here, uh, which is uh, closeout provisions, but we, uh, more importantly, we have a new pre-rescue, pre-insolvency proceeding, which we call the Starbuck. So that's very similar to UK restructuring plan or to a Dutch scheme. And um, just to give you a little bit more color here, the uh, main features um, of the new Stark proceeding is that it's a debtor-driven proceeding. So uh, the management of the debtor remains in the driver's seat. They are the ones who can apply for the proceeding, like in a Dutch scheme, for example. Um, and it's, um, it's also um, a debtor in possession proceeding in the sense that they're not replaced by um, an office holder, so they're only supervised by an office holder. And it's, um, it's also insolvency remote, so it's a proceeding which doesn't really um, rely on an insolvency reason, like an insolvency proceeding, but um, the only thing you need is an impending illiquidity, so a situation where you would say um, it's, it's likely that you will become illiquid and thereby insolvent within a certain time frame, in that case 24 months. It's also partially collective, um, so you don't have to include, like in an insolvency proceeding, all creditors and shareholders in the proceeding. It's um, really possible to only um, apply to certain uh, stakeholders. And the most important thing, it gives you a set of tools. So the debtor can actually use a set of tools, like in a toolbox. And the most important one is the restructuring plan. So the restructuring plan is, um, is a plan in which um, the uh, certain claims against the debtor can be uh, can be included and can be, uh, be altered, waived, for example, and um, also contractual provisions can be interfered with in the restructuring plan. And what you need to do that is you need a 75% majority vote in each class, which you have formed. That's pretty similar to a scheme of arrangement, for example, or, which is also a new feature, you can cross-class cram down. So if you, um, if you uh, don't have 75% um, majority in each class, you can cram down whole classes um, of creditors or shareholders. That's a new feature, at least outside of the insolvency proceeding. You also have access to a moratorium, three to eight months, and um, there's also an ipso facto ban, which um, basically limits termination rights and um, acceleration clauses, um, which are linked to triggering the start proceeding or using that proceeding in, in a certain way. So that's um, how the start proceeding works. Um, just, just to be clear, in, in this new Starag proceeding, closeout netting provisions are protected. Yes, I think that's that's a good example. One thing I wanted to, to say just now is that if your counterparty is actually a financial institution, you don't really have to worry about 
close out uh, netting uh, provisions and interference with that because then the stock is not applicable to um, to a financial institution. It's only applicable to your know, normal company. So that's uh, that's then off the uh, um, off the record. But um, yeah, um, close out netting provisions are protected in the stock, and there are three possible. Um, interferences where the shower can actually interfere with your closeout netting provision in your contract. The first one is the ipso facto ban, which I was just talking about. The second one is the moratorium, which we call a stabilization order. And the third one is uh, actually the restructuring plan. And the ipso facto ban, how that works is um, it really restricts termination rights, um, acceleration clauses, and change of control clauses, but only if they're actually linked to triggering the start proceeding or using a tool under the start proceeding. If that is what is in your provision, in your um, liquidation netting provision, for example, then that would generally be problematic. Yeah, but um, the, the good news here is that the law is very clear on that, that your typical closeout netting provisions are not within the scope of the ipso facto ban. So that is really carved out of the ipso facto ban, which is, um, yeah, which is, pretty clear in the law. It must be, of course, your typical closeout netting provision, which uh, which you would normally have in your ISTAR master agreement. So if that is fulfilled, then I think you're pretty much safe. The same applies for the moratorium, because the moratorium, as it works, can also re restrict the enforcement of, for example, security rights or the uh, even the termination of uh, or the using of termination clauses that can be restricted once you have a moratorium under certain circumstances. But here again, this you know, your typical close-out netting provisions are completely out of the scope of the, uh, the moratorium. So that's made clear. Also financial collateral, for example, if you would like to enforce financial collateral in a, in a margin call situation, for example, that would also be um, outside the, uh, the scope of the Starbuck. But the last point, the restructuring plan, that is where there could be a potential problem because although you're you know, closing out the contract and using the liquidation netting provisions is not really um, not really uh, interfered with by the Stark. The actual netted claim, which you have after you've used your netting, uh, the net claim against the counterparty, that can be made subject to a, a restructuring plan. So the restructuring plan can actually modify that claim. For example, waive that claim, that's possible, and it can also be made subject to a, to a moratorium. So that's probably one thing you should bear bear in mind. There might be a workaround um, in the sense that you could, from a timing perspective, simply wait until a moratorium has actually been declared before you close out the contract and then create your netted claim, because then it's arguable that um, it cannot be um, compromised in a restructuring plan if it's after a moratorium has been already declared. Um, but that's not court tested, so you really need to check then on a on a case-by-case -case basis if that, that really works. Okay, great. Thank you very much, Chris. That's uh, very <clears throat> interesting indeed. Um, I'm now going to hand over to uh, Reza in our Amsterdam office to ask if uh, if you could share any inter interesting developments in the Dutch market. Yes, happy to do so. Um, I think the other day um, I spoke about the Dutch Act on Court-Approved Scheme of Arrangements, which came into effect on the 1st of January 2021. Um, so, I'll be speaking today about um, a new regulation which will come into force exactly one year later, so on the 1st of January 2022. Um, we will see a new regulation coming into effect on the use of derivatives by Dutch healthcare institutions. Now, this regulation will a uh, aims to prevent uh, Dutch health 
care institutions from using derivatives for speculative purposes. And the background of this regulation lies in the fact that healthcare institutions are basically funded with public funds. And therefore, the idea is that they shouldn't engage in the use of complex and high-risk uh, financial products. This regulation is... Yes, sir. So I was just going to say, could you just expand on how that might impact on dealers? Yeah, sure. So in in essence, it's not very different from what dealers are familiar with already in the Netherlands uh, because the regulation fits in exactly with uh, prior policy on the regulation of derivatives by semi-public institutions. Uh, so basically, the regulation follows um, earlier similar sectoral regulations that imposed restrictions on for example, housing associations and educational institutions. So in that sense, um, dealers are basically impacted in the sense that they will be facing similar restrictions. So first, uh, the uh, healthcare institutions may, may only enter into interest rate caps, uh, payer swaps, and if related to payer swaps, forward starting swaps and swaptions. And only insofar as these derivatives are used to hedge certain interest rate or FX risks resulting from the related credit uh, facilities or contracts denominated in uh, foreign currency. Um, moreover, the derivatives must be denominated in euros and may not exceed the nominal value of the related contracts. Um, furthermore, the tenor of the derivatives used to hedge the interest rate risks may not exceed the maturity date of the credit facility um, with a maximum of 15 years. And for derivatives used to hedge um, FX risk, the maximum tenor is 12 months. Um, a second restriction that they should be aware of is that certain requirements do apply to the contractual terms of derivatives. So there is a provision to include unilateral termination rights uh, for the dealer and to call margin from the Dutch healthcare institutions. Uh, thirdly, healthcare institutions uh, may only enter into derivative transactions with dealers that are based in the economic European area. Um, so that's a very restrictive um, um, item. Obviously, um, after Brexit, it may be less restrictive um, furthermore, dealers must have a credit rating of at least single A or equivalent uh, by at least two of the you know, uh, most common uh, rating agencies. And then fourth and finally, a healthcare institution may only trade derivatives with dealers where uh, it is um, classified as a, a retail client by them. So we suspect that dealers will look to basically amend their existing ISAT uh, agreements, taking all of this into account. And in addition, uh, I suspect they will want to refresh their legal opinions. Thank you very much. Now, I, I believe we've only actually, we've been wobbling on. We've only actually got a, uh, four or five minutes left uh, in our session. So um, can I just ask uh, uh, Astrid, um, finally, just sort of moving across to Paris, um, if you could let us know about recent reform in France regarding security interests, because obviously security interests uh, play quite an important part when coming to realising um, assets. Thank you, Matt. Yes, um, that's that's a very interesting topic because on the 15th of September of this year, so quite recently, there has been a reform in France about a number of um, pledge mechanisms and one of them being the pledge of a securities account. Now, as you know, in connection with derivatives, we tend to use quite often, at least in France and I believe elsewhere, the pledge over securities account. And the French, French legislator wanted to make a few clarifications and make it more flexible. So, in a nutshell, just to try to remain within the four minutes left, um, the first thing was um, to do with income over the securities. So the French legislator made it clear that if you have income over the securities, this can be excluded or included in the scope of the pledge. 
The other thing is that at any point in time during the life of the pledge, before enforcement, the income can be included. So if at the outset you haven't included the income, you can decide during the life of the pledge to include it. And it will be deemed to have been included at the outset. That's the new mechanism. The other thing that the legislator wanted to clarify is the pledges over successive pledges over the same account. So you can have obviously one securities account and you can have successive pledges, therefore with successive rankings. And the legislator wanted to clarify, first of all, the possibility of doing that, which was already the case in practice, but also wanted to clarify the ranking because there were some issues as to how the ranking should work. So the ranking will work uh, take, uh, taking into account the date which is on the declaration of pledge. That's quite straightforward. And I guess the last point, which is probably the most interesting one, is to do with the enforcement of pledge over securities account. Now, in France, you have two regimes which are um, separate. If you have listed, basically listed security, you have one regime. If you have non-listed security, you have another regime. Where well, the idea was to harmonize the two regimes, at least for the notice period. So in France, for non-listed securities, you need to wait 80 days because, before you can enforce. So you notify, you wait eight days. This has been removed, so it's a major change under French law. You can, you can basically enforce within one, one business day, which wasn't the case before for unlisted securities. And the last thing is that um, we used to refer under French law to um, securities which are traded on a regulated market. That was the traditional notion that was used. Now we refer to securities which are traded on a trading platform to take into account the new you know, trading mechanisms. And I think that's about it, yes. That's great. Thank you very much. Now, apologies we appear to have run out of time. Um, so in terms of Q&A, um, we will follow up uh, with, uh, with people separately for, uh, for any questions. And, and please do feel free to contact uh, any one of the uh, speakers today if you've got um, any queries on any one of our respective areas of expertise. Uh, so thank you very much for joining today. Thank you very much to, to my uh, panel as well. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the session.